You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody. Glad to be back with you today. Uh, Carrie and I and our family, we're out for a couple of weeks, uh, but we're back. And as they say, there's no place like home. And that means being here with you, of course. Uh, but starting today, as you can see, for the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the topics of mercy, grace, violence, and anger in the life and the story of the Hebrew prophet named Jonah. Now, if that sounds at least somewhat minimally interesting to you, you're in the right place. And if it sounds terrible, you're still in the right place, uh, no matter what. So we're all in the right place together. Can you say amen? All right, let's begin and get going here with Jonah chapter one. I'll be your scripture reader. You can follow along here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? (laughs) They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up. Throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's the reading of God's word. All his people said, amen. Yeah, there's something that social psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. Say that with me if you would. Fundamental attribution error. Yes, that's the name given to something that happens when there's a gap in a relationship. A gap between me and you, or you and them, or us and them. Whenever there's a gap uh, created, that is when you do or say something 
I think that you should or shouldn't or vice versa. I do something, I say something you think that I shouldn't have done or you regret that I did. Or whenever I don't respond to the email <laughs> or the text or the phone call or you don't, whenever there's some kind of gap created, Sociologists tell us that human beings almost always put something specific in the middle of that, into the gap, and almost every time human beings insert this thing called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error says that when you create the gap, I fundamentally attribute the gap to some deficiency in you. <laughs> but when I create the gap... I attribute the gap to some deficiency outside me. In other words, when you blow it, it's your character. If I blow it, you know, it's not my fault. The fundamental attribution error looks like me inserting judgment on you in the gap, but me inserting something else for me. What is that? What is that thing that we struggle to give away to others, but we want for ourselves, to extend to ourselves, almost demand for ourselves? That thing that sits at the core of what we all long for, we all need, is a gift in such short supply today. It is the gift of mercy. Amen. Get the mercy. Wow, I got one amen. That's okay. That's all right. It's all, all good. All good. We're going to stop here. It's okay. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Gift of mercy. Yes. It's a merciful amen, wasn't it? <laughs> Just y'all had more like pity. <laughs> pity on the man up there, mama. Mercy's a gift. We have a hard time giving it to others. And the lack of doing that, I want to tell you, it ruins us. It makes us poorer for the not giving. So how can we do better? How can we to quote sort of the prophet Hosea, go and learn mercy right now in our very anti-mercy cultural moment, Jonah chapter one can help. Let's try to see today how the God of the Bible puts mercy in the gap between himself and his very prodigal prophet. By the way, as we move through Jonah's story, let me just say this quick disclaimer. For those of you who know the story, you grew up Sunday school somewhere, some of you may really struggle with the idea of a man being swallowed and kept alive by a really big fish, and I understand. So three things real quick about that. First, if you're a Christian, you already believe in a supernatural God, right? We already believe that God can raise a man from the dead, so surely we can believe in something miraculous like this, okay? But second, though, I wanna tell you, because there's a lot of Jesus-loving, bright minds who look at this and they say there's space to consider the book of Jonah as comedy, even satire, because Jonah's kind of like a cartoon character sometimes. He's ridiculous. There's a lot of irony in it. So number three, the point is we're not going to get hung up on the fish, all right? Because the book of Jonah is, after all, a literary genre called Hebrew narrative, and Hebrew narrative seeks above all else to answer a single question, who is the Lord? Who is the God of the Bible? And the answer we're going to see today is this. He is the God who puts mercy in the gap. Not for some, but for all. For all of us and all of the all of thems. Okay, we're going to see God's mercy in four parts. There's mercy first in the sending. Mercy in the storm. Mercy in the sailors. And mercy in the sea. Ascending storm, the sailors in the sea. Here we go. Jonah chapter one, when there's mercy, 
in the sending. It says, the word of the Lord came. Now we'll pause there because Jonah's story at this point, it begins with a familiar phrase with Bible prophets. The original audience, hearers, readers would have surely thought this was familiar. The word of the Lord came because this is what happened to prophets. The word of the Lord came to the prophet and the prophet would deliver or speak the word. So the original audience would not have been surprised by that first phrase. They would, however, have been surprised by the next two things they would have heard. They would have been surprised by the person, the kind of person, to whom the word came and the place to where the word would be sent. Because this word came to, says, Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, who is this person, Jonah? We know Jonah was a real man, a real prophet who lived and ministered during the reign of King Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, in roughly 750 B.C. Second Kings, though, the book of Second Kings 14.25 tells us something really important about Jonah that gives us a clue to his person. It tells us that unlike two other prophets you've probably heard of named Amos and Hosea, who critiqued King Jeroboam, criticizes his administration for its ongoing injustices and unfaithfulness to God, Jonah supported Jeroboam. Jonah supported Jeroboam, specifically his aggressive military expansionist policies in order to extend Israel's power and influence. Jeroboam, King Jeroboam said, in other words, let's conquer. Hosea and Amos said, no, don't do it. Bad idea. God doesn't like it. Jonah said, go for it. Do it. The original readers then would have known Jonah to be an intensely patriotic, some would say a highly partisan Jewish nationalist. And it's this one to whom the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. What was the word? The word was also about a place. God said, go to the great city of Nineveh. I'm sure Jonah's thinking, well, I wouldn't call it great, but okay, God, your word, not mine. This would have been sort of shocking on two levels for that audience. One, because prophets never left their land on some wild goose chase missionary quest. Prophets only ever prophesied from their hometown, home nation, unless they were forcibly relocated, say like Daniel. But to go to Nineveh? No way, no how. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was the largest city in the world at that time in Assyria. One commentator put it like this, was basically a terrorist state. Why? Well, perhaps it's most well-known emperor, Shalmaneser III, not the second, the third, thank you, <laughs> was famous for commissioning works of art to be made all about his conquests. They intentionally depicted torture, dismembering, decapitation of his enemies. After capturing their enemies, for example, the Assyrians would cut off both legs but only one arm to be able to shake the hand of the one dying in agony as they looked on in mockery. Or they would decapitate their enemies and force the surviving family and friends to march in front of the Assyrians with their family and friends' heads on poles. They would pull the skin off their enemies and hang the skins on the walls like trophies. They burned teenagers alive. One historian called this history, Syrian history, quote, as gory and as blood-curdling a history as we know. And now God, ready for it, God is about to send this person to that place. The Jewish nationalist to the heart of this pagan 
evil empire. Why? What's the plan? Well, the word of the Lord said, go to that great city and preach against it because it's wickedness that come up before me. So God tells Jonah to go preach against Nineveh. Why? Because God is for Nineveh. Sometimes let me tell you a word against you. Come on. can really be a word for you. You see, God's for righteousness, for right doing, for justice in the public square. And by the way, you should love a God like this. You should want a God like this, a God who cares about how nations act in the world. Because if you have a God who ultimately fails to judge evil, you got a God who fails to love. See, But Jonah, oh, he knows some good news and some bad news. He knows that's the good news, which is this. The good news about this God he's been called to speak for is this. As far as Jonah's concerned, the good news is, is that if the wickedness of the Ninevites has come up before God, that means their judgment is right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also knows the bad news about God. The bad news scares him way worse. The bad news is this. Jonah knows that if Nineveh repents, God will actually forgive him. He'll show him mercy. Jonah's so afraid that God will put mercy in the gap with his enemies. Instead of arising and going to Nineveh, he arises and literally goes the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. This is like God saying, hey, you all in Austin, I want you to you know, hang, a, hang a right and go to Atlanta. We're like, nope, hanging a left and going to Hong Kong, Taipei, Bangkok, Manila, someplace way, way far away. Look at verse three. After paying the fare, He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Why did God send this person to that place? Hear me. It's not just in to show mercy to Nineveh. That was true. But to show mercy to Jonah. Mercy to Jonah. The commentators note something real fascinating about Jonah's story, which is this. That Jonah, if you've never seen it before, Jonah's basically like a, a 750 B.C. version of Jesus Christ's parable of the prodigal son, or the two sons. Because in the first two chapters of Jonah, Jonah acts like who? The younger brother. Jonah runs away from his father, runs away from God, runs away from home. Then things go real bad for him, but ultimately he repents and he comes back when things get bad enough. But in the last two chapters, Jonah acts a lot like that older son, in Christ's parable. He gets angry, Jonah does, when God accepts the end of his repentance. Jonah sulks. He keeps his distance from all the younger brothers down in the city. And just like in Jesus' parable, the book of Jonah, as we'll see, ends with the question. It's unresolved. Jonah's the only book of the Bible that ends literally with a question, just like Jesus' parable was his only one to end unresolved. We don't know how either story actually ends. What's the point? It's this, that Jonah, like both of their sons, those sons each in their own way, they, he didn't know about God's mercy for him, so he had none to give away to others. What about you? What about me? What about us? Do we know this, or do we just watch the TV or the news and get real mad over and over again at those we've been told we should hate? Mm-hmm. Blessed, Jesus said, are the super judgmental. Oh, wait, sorry. Got that wrong. Blessed are the perpetually outraged. Oh, wait, no. Blessed are the easily offended. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I could go on. Wait, come on, blessed are the what? Why? They. 
to show mercy. Why did God want Jonah to go to the Ninevites? So Jonah could experience for himself the gift and the gap, the mercy of God. By the way, there's always mercy when God sends you, even if you don't understand. There's always mercy when God sends us. But number two, there's also mercy. And number two, the storm. Not just in the sending, but also in the storm. Let's keep going. It says, verse four, then the Lord sent. By the way, it's ironic, isn't it? The last sentence said, he was trying to flee from the Lord. (laughs) Then the Lord sent. It's cluing you in. You can't run, but you can't hide, all right? The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, this is not a normal storm. It's of supernatural origin. It's aimed squarely at Jonah. What's going on? Well, in C.S. Lewis's book, you may have read it, called The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, there's a boy in the story named Eustace Scrub, all right? Now, after first service, some guy came up to me. He said, actually, my name is Eustace. That's the first time I've ever heard my name used in a sermon before, so thank you. So for all the Eustaces of the world, you know, today is your day, sort of. But Eustace is sort of a British version of that Chris Rock show, Everybody Hates Chris, because everybody hated this Eustace. Eustace is selfish, he's mean, he's petty, but he finds himself in the story pulled out of our world into Narnia and on a boat on a long voyage with his cousins and some other sailors. But at one point, the boat finds an island, pulls into a harbor for repairs, and Eustace, instead of helping with repairs for the ship, Eustace goes off on his own, ignores everyone else, and finds a cave. Now, this cave is filled with diamonds and rubies and gold, and he thinks, I'm rich. And he begins to fantasize about taking revenge on all his enemies, everyone who's ever said a mean word about him. And he falls asleep, takes a nap on the pile of gold. But what he doesn't know is that the treasure on which he falls asleep is actually the hoard of a dragon. Therefore, it's enchanted. It's a fairy tale. But he wakes up as an actual dragon. The, the enchantment of the dragon horde has changed him, in other words. Now, Eustace has become, on the outside... But he's always been on the inside. Terrible and ugly. Now, soon he realizes there's no way out. He realizes he's too big to fit on the boat and get off the island. It's too far to fly anywhere to another mainland. And he realizes he's going to be left all alone forever. And he begins to despair. But one night, of course, the great lion Aslan, the Christ figure, shows up, leads him to a clear pool of water and tells him to undress and to jump in. And suddenly Eustace understands that undress means to take off the dragon's skin, but he can't do it. Eustace begins to take his own claw and try to peel it off super gently, a little bit at a time, and he finally peels off the lightest layer of his skin, but he finds out, to his chagrin and dismay, there are multiple layers. He can't ever go deep enough. And in the end, the lion says to him, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And these are Eustace's words of what happened next. He said, quote, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate. Now, the first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw, I turned into a boy again. What's the point? The point is that the, the claw of Aslan, the pain of Aslan's claw had come into his life 
to change him, set him free. Hmm? And the same here is true of Jonah's storm. The pain of the storm had come to set Jonah and all us Jonas free. Now, let me say this. Not all storms in life are because of sin. Come on. That's literally the point of the book of Job. Sometimes the very most righteous people suffer, and it's not their fault. So while not all storms are because of sin, let me tell you, every sin does bring a kind of storm. Okay? Not, some of you don't like that. All right, it's all good. There's more where that came from. <laughs> while not all storms are because of sin, the Bible teaches every sin brings a kind of storm. Think about it. When we're unfaithful, we're irresponsible. There's almost like a storm that comes back on us that accompanies those actions or choices. When we abuse our bodies, uh, we suffer. When we overwork, we suffer. When we lie, what happens? We tend to get lied to right back. Uh, when, we, when we cheat, we tend to get cheated right back. When we steal, we get stolen from. When we gossip, we tend to get gossiped about. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner puts it like this. Sin sets up strains in the structure of life, which can only end in breakdown. In other words, all sin brings a storm. And when we sin, let me tell you, when we run away from God, we run away from the word of God. We run away from the authority of God. We begin to release forces beyond our control that we would never want, but that God can use to come like Aslan's claw to undress us to go deeper and set us free. But again, this storm has come to Jonah. Why? Because Jonah still hadn't learned. So will he? He hasn't learned mercy from the sending. Will he learn mercy in the storm? And the answer is not quite. <laughs> not yet. There's one more demonstration of God's mercy to Jonah, something that finally breaks him through and literally wakes him up. Not just mercy in the sending or even in the storm, but mercy from the sailors. So who are these sailors? Now, I love this. A lot of people love this when they read this because perhaps the greatest irony in the whole book is that Jonah literally tries to run away from converting to and preaching to pagans at all costs. <laughs> and what does he end up doing? Preaching to and converting pagans, even against his will. There's this little thing called the sovereignty of God. Thank you very much. But let's acknowledge, these sailors, they're, they kind of, unintentionally shame the man of God at every turn because their behavior is always better than his. Look at this. A few things. The sailors are in reality about the storm. They get it. Jonah's like blind. Like he's not even there. The sailors care for the common good of all on board. Jonah only cares about himself. The sailors work to rescue everyone, but Jonah goes below deck. He falls asleep. The sailors at least, you know, they pray to their gods. They get like a pagan prayer meeting going on on deck, but Jonah doesn't even pray to the real God who he said made the sea. They aren't prejudiced toward Jonah, but Jonah's prejudiced towards them. What's going on? And again, the mercy of God. God's working through the sailor's example to try to wake up his child, his running man. And now through a series of final questions, they ask him, God's trying to expose, to expose what's in Jonah's heart so that he'll see it, maybe repent, and even be changed. Look at what they ask him. So they asked him, tell us, you know, who's responsible for this? What kind of work do you do? 
Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Now, listen, these are known, what is known as identity questions. Hmm? Who are you, Jonah? They're trying to get at. Who are you really? Help us understand you. At the core of you, who are you? But notice how Jonah answers. He doesn't answer their questions in the order in which they were asked. Because he's asked first, primarily, what kind of work do you do? This is also translated as, what's your mission? In other words, what's your purpose in life? What's your purpose in life? Jonah, tell us, who are you at your core? And how does Jonah answer? What does he say first? Now you notice that Jonah hasn't even spoken yet in the book that bears his name until right now. So what will his first words be? Because in Hebrew narrative, you should know, the first thing a person says always gives the reader a deep clue to who the person is. What does Jonah say? Who are you, Jonah? Doesn't answer. A prophet? Doesn't answer, serve God. No, he says, I am a Hebrew. In other words, he doesn't put his faith first. He puts his race and ethnicity first. One commentator, Daniel Timmers, puts it like this. Since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer his ethnicity is foremost in his identity. Here's the point. While Jonah had, for sure, a relationship with God, it wasn't as significant to him, didn't go as deep as his ethnicity, ethnicity, race, culture, nation. And this is why when push came to shove, Jonah would rather run away than do what's right and take God's mercy to a foreign land. Let me tell you, loving your nation is one thing, and that's good. Giving your life for your nation can be a good thing. Depends on the cause, right? A loving, noble, sacrificial thing it can be. But turning your nation into your very reason for existence, the rest of the world be damned. That's called nationalism. That blinds us to our own sins. Like Jonah was blind to his. Listen, God has come here and come in his mercy to uproot Jonah's idols of ethnicity nation, culture, and he allows these pagan sailors in on his runaway prophet rescue project. What about you? What about me? Someone were to ask you today, fill a little questionnaire on the way out of the doors today. Who are you? Who are you really? Hmm? Who are you? What's your mission? What's your purpose in life? Would you say white, black, brown, Democrat, Republican, gay, straight, come on. What would you say? Who are you? You know, those things don't save you, right? They don't save you. We're followers of Jesus Christ first. Being faithful, let me tell you, to Jesus first, to his word, loving God and our neighbor as ourselves is what makes a country great. America can only be great, Alexis de Tocqueville said, can be great if we're good first, you see. And experiencing the mercy of God for us personally is what can transform us into good people. See, how can that happen? Number four, through the final move of God's mercy in chapter one, it's in the sea. Finally, oh, finally it begins to dawn on our poor man Jonah. He's responsible for all this. And while he didn't totally change right here, he still does something Really remarkable. 
pick me up. He's like, I'm fresh out of ideas. We cast lots. We tried praying. I just, I guess man overboard is all we got left. Throw me into the sea, he replied. It'll become calm. I know that it's my fault. This great storm doesn't come, has come upon you. Now, he's not repenting here for running away, but he's saying, I, it's my fault. What's happening? Okay, two things on two levels. First, Jonah's learning in a small part, teensy tiny part. He's like the kind of like the Grinch. His heart hadn't grown three sizes, maybe just like one size so far. What mercy feels like because he knows if he shows none to these sailors, they're doomed. They'll drown. See, the sending, the storm, the sailors have all now opened his heart to going into the sea. So overboard he goes. And now, in irony of all ironies, he finds that the God he's been running from runs to him to catch him, to save him, to rescue him. Jonah found love beneath the waves. He found mercy in the gap between himself and God, which now points us to the second thing going on. It's something with the sailors. What happened to them? Look at this. So they picked up Jonah, threw him in. The sea stopped. Then then the men, then the men, then they feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Can you get the picture? When the sailors see God's messenger, God's servant be thrown into a storm of God's wrath, they watch the storm cease and their lives are changed. Listen, this isn't a a, a foxhole conversion like, God, if you get me out of this one, I'll serve you. No, they do this not in wartime, so to speak, but in peacetime after the storm has passed. They saw a man go into the heart of the sea, the heart of a storm, watch the storm stop, and it caused their hearts to melt. The only way to understand this is to understand what Jesus Christ of Nazareth himself said centuries later about this very passage. Because at one point, people began to come to Jesus. They began to question him. They began to challenge him. They began to doubt him, like some of us may be doubting him today. And what did Jesus say to them? He said this in Matthew 12. He said, you want a miracle or a sign? All right. He said, I'll I'll give you a sign. No sign (laughs) will be given you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking about himself. Jesus was saying, Kim, can you see? To them then, us today, asking this question, oh, you really want to know me? Great. Do you really want to know who I am? Do you want your life to be changed by an encounter with me? Jesus is saying, you got to go see what those sailors saw. And what did they see? Come on. They saw a sinking Savior. Jesus says, that's me. That's me. He's our true sinking Savior. He sees us in our plight caught in the grip of some self-addiction or idol or whatever, has mercy on us, on the cross, was willingly thrown into an ocean of God's wrath, God's divine justice against all of us, the word that's come against us in a way. But when Christ was thrown in, unlike Jonah, no one caught him. And he sank and he died. And because he was thrown in for us, now God's wrath against us has ceased. The storm has stopped if you'll see this, that Jesus was your savior like this, guess what? Now your heart can be changed. It's mercy for you wherever you are. It can drop whatever thing you might have named first on that list. There are two parts of this, by the way. You've got to see that your savior had to sink for you. Like you couldn't do it. You deserve what he got, but you have to see this savior was willing 
glad to do it for you. Like Jonah, Jesus said, you can't die for me. Only I can die for you. Jesus said, throw me in for you. And that's the gospel. When you see that, maybe you could even pray or sing these words. It's an old hymn. It goes like this. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior art thou. If ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, tis now. If you experience mercy in the gap, you can today. Let me take a moment and pray for us. Lord, we come in Jesus' name and we thank you for this, for all, for me, Lord, a challenging word. Lord, it's a word against us really is a word for us many times. Lord, you were for Jonah, you're for the Ninevites. And so you opened up something between them so you could put mercy in. And Lord, I'm praying today, if we've never experienced that or tasted that, Lord, we would just get even a glimpse, a new glimpse, a fresh glimpse of your mercy. And that would transform us and enable us to give that away. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor Cole. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.